You are listening to episode 33 of Paz de Chipotle, a show that explores the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and brings together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world championing Mexican food. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. To find more information about the podcast, please go to pasdechipotle.com. You can subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Google Play, and YouTube. Saúl Talavera, better known to his customers as El Tamalucas, runs a food business selling Mexican traditional bespoke and gourmet tamales in Las Vegas, Nevada, in the U.S. Like many Mexican-American immigrants, Saúl's parents left their home country and family behind to give their children better chances in life. They had to work relentlessly hard to avoid falling into the cracks of unemployment, uncertainty, social vulnerability, and poverty, which are just some of the many challenges that thousands of Latino families face every day. It is often the case that the mere lack of resources and accredited skills prevents highly creative immigrants to start a business and become entrepreneurs. But in this interview, Saul shares his powerful story of pursuing a dream of independence and dignity to reach his personal and professional goals. Saul's father may not have lived to see his son's business popularity and success, but his legacy surely ignites the recipes and passion that Saul brings every day to El Tamalucas. On the YouTube version of this episode, you will find loads of images of his delicious creations. And on this episode's notes, there are Saul's social media details. Make sure to follow him. Every story, every cook, and every recipe offers great lessons and inspiration. This is Saul's. I hope you enjoy this episode. Saul, I am so happy to be with you today and have you on the show. There are so many things I want the listeners to know about you, about your experience, about your own family. Feel very, very welcomed to Paz de Chipotle. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Um, well, where do I start? Um, Tamalucas essentially started with just an idea. To start a family-owned business, you know, um, so he said, you know, the, the art for tamales is, is dying. That's how, how my father felt. He said he, he wanted to bring that back to life, to incorporate new flavors and just kind of get in inspirations from other cultures, you know, such as Italian and Chinese. And I thought it was a, an awesome idea, actually, you know, once he put it in that perspective, I, I loved it. He had the, the sazon, he had the technique to make a, a good tamale. He was thinking to change the way people saw tamales. He was looking beyond what I was envisioning. I think that that was much more powerful. You know, it, it wasn't being made with love anymore. He did what he thought was, was going to make it better or just unique. 
everything that is happening and said and, and thought about ethnic and traditional food is just exactly resonating with what your dad envisioned because it, that's exactly what we see now ethnic food being almost ubiquitous in pop-ups trucks in market stalls and even chefs or cooks doing private catering so i think it's really a hot ticket i think your dad intuitively thought this was the perfect time and start shifting the approach to a food that seemed almost inconsequential uh, even for the Mexican-American community. So something that could be seen as exotic, uh, you have come a long way turning it into a beautiful, appealing and tantalizing meal. Tamales for Mexicans are probably the most recognizable of comfort foods. This type of food also has been appropriated in America and there are many Americanized versions of tamales. The interpretations of these tamales can also range from being amazing to being very poor. I think it's or it must have been really hard to rebrand at the beginning, you know, when your dad had this idea, how to rebrand and create a new appreciation of something that your dad saw as a lost art, you know, this very culturally significant food. How did you reach out to this diverse market outside like that had no idea what tamales were, what they are and why they are so significant? And how have you challenged pre-existing conceptions about Mexican food? It was definitely hard just to come up to a total stranger in a parking lot and ask them if they like tamales. You know, they'd look at you like, well, what do you mean? You know, and they're going to say no. Yeah, I, I knew that for a fact because, you know, there's there's people out there slanging tamales out of their trunks and they were just poorly made. So, yeah, it was very hard to try to get people to even believe that these tamales were coming from me, you know, because they, they'd see me and they're like, oh, who makes them? Once I said me, it was like, uh, oh, no, thanks. He's tatted up. He's beautiful. He probably just labeled me from, from my appearance and, and, you know, so it was definitely hard to even get people to try them. Now, to get people to buy them was even a bigger challenge. I came to different, you know, local businesses in my area and just offered free samples. It, it, that didn't work. You know, slowly, slowly people started, okay, yeah, he, these are they're good tamales. And even at, at the time, I was just starting. I, I didn't know exactly what I was doing. But then I started social media and started reaching out to more people and and just trying to provide something for everyone. You know, there's a lot of people eating clean nowadays. A lot of people don't eat certain meats. A lot of people are turning into, you know, vegetarians and vegans. And, you know, you, you got to have something for everyone. And I think that's that was the most important part. As far as pushing it to different um, cultures and still keeping that Mexican tradition flavors, but doing something a little different as well. Something that's just going to catch their attention to, oh, well, I want to try that. That looks good. That sounds good, you know. Uh, sort of summing up what you went through was like, okay, I'm not going to change my looks because that's who I am. I mean, that's very brave for you to own that as part of you and say, I'm not giving up on my authenticity. Neither are giving up on my idea of selling tamales, but I can produce something that resonates with people's interests. Because like you said, you know, in our modern world, when, when we are so diet obsessed and we want, you know, everything to be healthy and sophisticated and also authentic and delicious. You know, you clearly saw this opportunity to cash in all those things to make it easier to understand. 
you mentioned also something very important. It's the legacy from your dad and also the legacy that he received from your abuela, your grandmother. You had that as a blessing and an asset, this huge knowledge that was passed on to you. Would you please expand more about, you know, for the global audience, what does the family institution uh, of a grandmother mean for a Mexican family and what role uh, abuelitas played in your own life? Oh man, well, that's, that's, that's a very touching uh, subject. You know, I, I grew up without an abuelita. You know, I, I, I was brought here very young. My parents, you know, we all lived here in the States the rest of our lives. We never went back to visit. Um, we kept in touch with my abuelita for, you know, I, I would talk to her every now and then, but she got very old. She got, uh, Alzheimer's and she would forget things and people, but she always remembered me and my sister. You know, we were the ones that her only two grandchildren that she met her first also and and she always remembered us so it there's something about Nawalita spirit that's so powerful that I feel every person should have experienced that energy you know that that Nawalita energy is just so loving so warming so and, and I didn't get to, to experience that I until I met my wife of course you know but that was her grandmother and I experienced her for just a few years and it was something that I I missed growing up but her her cooking lives through my parents she taught both my mom and dad you know my mother also her her mom passed an early age for her I think it was even before I was born so I didn't get to experience her and you know my father's Abuelita, obviously, she always felt connected to us because, you know, we were her first grandchildren and she always remembered us. So, yeah, it's it's very sad, you know, to say that I didn't get to have her around to, to kind of kind of watch me grow, you know, and, and see what I'm doing now with the tamales that she taught my dad how to make. You know, he obviously put a little twist on them, but most of the the ingredients that are there and, and the, the same ways that she taught him how to make them is the same ways that, that he taught me. And, and, and still to this day, I stick to those, you know. I remember when we were preparing for this interview and you talked about your abuelita, you know, you talk about having her influence or, you know, the fact that she, she taught your parents how to cook, which is quite unusual. I think abuelas, grandmothers in Mexico, are seen and they see themselves, you know, like as a public good. <laughs> I don't know how else right. to put it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Although you may not have had a physical relationship, I think that her legacy is like almost summoned every day through your work. And what you are really producing with your food and what you are offering the world is not just a delicious tamal, but is all your heritage. And that is actually the heart and soul of traditional food. So, of course, I can imagine how challenging it is if you are not ready and prepared in a ruthless business environment. It is challenging to, to, to get around. Okay, you, you will have these many doors either not opening or being closed uh, right in your face. What did you do next? Um, when, when you become a small business owner, you run into even bigger walls because... This is your livelihood, you know, you've, even if you have nothing, you've invested everything into it, you know, your time, your, your passion, your love. And 
my wife helps me out a lot. I have family members that do as well, but 95% of the time it's just me, you know, everything from promoting to cooking to working on a new recipe, bookings, everything is, is ran by one person most of the time when, when you start a, a small business. And um, there was a time, yeah, that, that I, I wanted to, to just stop. But that, that motivation came back through my wife and my kids. Like, hey, look, you know, you, it's not about the, the money. You know, it's, it's about like the legacy that you're trying, the story, your story that you're trying to push. You know, you're, you're going to change things. You're going to change the way people view the mothers. You know, the, you got to have that ambition, you know, and once you have it, uh, everything else is, is out the window. I mean, before I did this, I had no direction. I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. I didn't have any goals. You know, I, I looked at myself and Jesus, am I going to be a, a manager at a fast food restaurant for the rest of my life? Is this really what I want? Like, what am I doing and now? Like I have goals. I, I set new ones. You know, I, I meet the ones that I set and, and you just keep going. You turn into a cycle. You, you, you get better. You work on your product. You make people happy. That's one of the most gratifying just feelings that, that people appreciate what you're doing. You know, they're feeding their kids with, with your food. This is something special. You know, like that's a reminder that you're doing something good and you're, you should keep doing it. You know, whatever you come across, figure the best solution and move on. You know, there's no turning back. Just keep fighting. Yeah. Um, um. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that is a rare occasion without matter of words. No, thank you, thank you. I'm flattered. Thanks. I... Which was the moment when you said you you started coming up with your own recipes and things like that, and then finally got a breakthrough. Which were this key or a key event that sort of got you like, ah, this is going to be my take, and I'm going to continue exploring this new uh, route. Well, um, uh, you know, all this started with just deliveries and and doing tamales by the dozen, you know. For me, it was just, no, I need something more. I need, I need to show these people that, that, you know, I can get down. Like I can hook something up in front of you and make it look pretty and enjoyable, you know? So I thought of, uh, pop-ups like tamalisas and presenting tamales open faced, uh, topped with different toppings, you know, different salsas and, you know, something people have never seen before really. It was something new, it was something different. Now let's do pop-ups and events and, you know, we're not just going to serve you a, a tamal with rice and beans on the side. It's going to be a tamal with something different. Some more in traditional Mexican ways with, you know, maybe salsa verde and, and queso fresco. And then others with maybe hot Cheetos and, and elotes. That, that'll blow your mind. Or a fried egg, you know, like a, a huevo on top. You just want to wow them. Oh my God, you know, if they're not even going to ask for rice and beans at that time, you know, they're... <laughs> So that it, we we try to push it to you know try to try to incorporate other ideas and cultures you know I have other that are inspired by um, American staple sandwiches such as Philly cheesesteak or you know like a meatball or something you know just make it fun but also taste good. You really are onto something. Uh, seeing. How flexible, fertile, traditional food is, you know, might be influenced by the fact that you are the son of immigrants. You really don't have the cultural way of this tradition because 
something you might not know because you didn't grow up in, in Mexico, where the way of traditional food is a source of pride and, of course, inspiration. And at the same time, for many contemporary cooks, it's really a burden and they find it really, really difficult to innovate or even, you know, to allow themselves to be playful, uh, to push the boundaries. And, and then the reaction normally for people in Mexico towards these type of innovations tends to be very negative, even to this day. I mean, it's changing. It's really important to learn from people like you. You allow yourself to explore the boundaries and the plasticity of these uh, creations and come up with your own and channel your expression through it. Like, really, you are, you are doing something really unique. Well, thank you. I honestly, I, I learned everything from just my parents. I grew up watching Bobby Flay and Rachel Ray. Like, those were my idols. Where were you said about the, the, the Latino or Mexican culture? I feel like they're just very prideful. They want to keep things traditional. It's still Mexican flavors. Why not just play with it? You know, make it a little different. Everything evolves. Everything, you know, life evolves itself. What cooking does, too. But I feel like the Latin culture is just very, very proud that they don't want, you know, their traditions to die. I think that's what they're scared of. And it's not dying. It, it's if anything, it's just evolving. It, it's getting better. We're keeping the, the traditional flavors, the spices and even the ways to make them. I still mix the masa by hand because of that pride. But I'm not forgetting about, about my culture. But once they try it, you know, even then they won't tell you that it's delicious. But inside their bellies are screaming. They're like, oh, my God, this is so good. You know, but I, I feel like that's just the pride that, that comes with, with that Latin culture. You're absolutely right about pointing out that misinterpret pride. Because in one hand, of course, ha has kept all our traditions alive. And we're very thankful for that. On the other hand, we have forgotten that corn was only domesticated about 10,000 years ago. Before that, there was nothing. And they all had to experiment from scratch. We ought to be more like you. <laughs> and they... No, honestly, and we have to say, we are just building upon this greatness. And there is no reason on earth why we should stop creating more and more amazing uh, things, no? Right. I feel like we, we just need to create new ideas. I mean, that, that's what life is all about. That's what the growth is, is, is all about. <laughs> yeah, I'm into that. And I, I want to switch a little bit, dig uh, a bit deeper into what the community you belong to, the, the Mexican-American community, goes through in the food industry these days. Uh, probably, uh, like no other food celebrity of our time, Anthony Bourdain used this full weight of his gravitas to actually champion and make visible the people who keep the American food industry rolling, which are the Latino and mostly Mexican immigrants who constitute one of the most undervalued and probably overexploited class, at least in that industry. For people who are not in your position, to us, this problem, although it might enrage us, we don't really know how to react or what to do. I don't know if you would be willing to give us some insight into, you know, the reality of the food industry for the Latino immigrants and how much of those hard lessons did you take with you and said, I'm going to learn from this, shaped your own personal work ethic. Uh, but, but you will tell us more about that, please. 
Well, let, let me start with Anthony Bourdain. Um, Anthony, I very much looked up to. I loved him ever since, like, as a young teenager. He changed a lot of ways people's perspective on food and dining. He was a huge fan of, of street food. He loved the street food vendors, the little carts that sold tacos de cabeza, or he was there. He was a huge part of my life. I, I loved watching him on TV. I loved the way he was as a person. The, the Latino, you know, immigrants um, that start businesses here in America have it so much harder, you know, because they start from scratch. They either start small, selling tacos in the corner, and then they move their way up. It, it's hard to get licenses and stuff like that. When you're an immigrant, you have no papers. You know, I talk to most of these people that, that sell just elotes or paletas or fruta, stuff like that. It's much harder for them to become a legitimate business because they have no proper documentation. The reality is that those people can expand. They can move up. They stay stuck. This is their life. That's it. There's nothing else for them because they can't get the proper documentation. So it makes things harder for them. Yeah, it gets the bills paid, but they can't do much the work ethic of the Latino community is just strong. They keep working. You know, my generation has a, a bigger ambition to expand. They're not scared. They want to get permits. They want to get everything legit and grow. I feel like the older generations feel so stuck because of their vulnerability of, of being here illegally. You know, they can't move up. You think then probably the fact that you are also a generation that was in the digital world, that's also very empowering to find in that a sense of community which former generations didn't have. And if they did, they were best kept secret and underground for all the reasons that you said. It was a survival mode. And on the other hand, the bravery of your generation to pursue their own personal professional growth, but actually playing by the rules, which is something that is rarely spoken about in mainstream media, the real effort that young Latino entrepreneurs are putting into playing by the country's rules. It's much more easier to label them your community, uh, rough traders who would rather remain in the fringes of legality. And it's, it's really not the case, no? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, absolutely, most people, of course, you know, they're, they're afraid. There is legal ways, you know, you just got to do your research and pursue your business with legal documentation. And you're, you're going to be able to become a, a successful business, grow from there. Yeah, make make a better assessment in the end of the cost of opportunity to well, walking into the unknown. Uh, it will definitely open new doors. Changing the subject, uh, going back to the tamales. Tamales in Mexico are this staple food. You know, we don't really garnish uh, tamales or dress them in, in any special way because they are such a staple part of everyday life that are really honestly taken for granted. Well, let's not forget that tamales have a very long and complex culinary history in Mexico. The Nahuatl word for them is tamali, and they have been found <laughs> as part of, uh, you know, centuries-old ceremonial offers and burials or pre-Columbian temples. And while the use of ingredients to prepare them has changed significantly, 
mainly because, you know, over the centuries, products from Europe after the conquest of the Americas, like pork, lard, certain meats uh, were added to tamales, sugar. You know, I think it's really admirable that they remain a favorite food to this day. We have over 500 different types of tamales that form this huge culinary diversity in a plate. <laughs> but I'm very aware that many of the listeners might not be familiar with tamales, might not even ever have tried one, or some might have just eaten a certain type of tamales. So why don't you walk us through the anatomy of a tamal, the ingredients that go into one, how do you cook it, and the particular type of tamales you now prepare. I understand that you do a huge variety, but you know, the base of the tamal upon which you build your different creations. Uh, I've been telling people, and I'm like, it's not tamales, it's tamali. It's not tamales. Yes, we pronounce it, it grew onto us as, you know, Mexican. And no, I did my research, okay? I know it's tamali. So thank you for, for just justifying that. The basics of the tamal, it's the masa, it's it's grinded corn. You, know, you grind it uh, freshly or they, they use different types of corn to grind the masa. You, you mix it with either some kind of broth, whether it's chicken broth, beef or, or pork or vegetable. You know, you got to add the moisture. You got to you got to mix it until the consistency is right. You spread it onto the, the oja, whether it's um, a banana leaf or a corn husk. You stuff it with pretty much whatever you want. Anything, uh, the traditional flavors are always pulled pork, shredded chicken with sauces in them, whether it's uh, chile colorado or salsa verde, or they also do cheese, you know, queso con rajas with uh, a slice of cheese and a slice of jalapeno. But you can take that to anything else. If you want to stuff it with meatloaf, stuff it with just veggies and whatever you feel that that's going to make a tamal good. It can be sweet. It can be savory. It can be spicy. It can be saucy. We do it all, everything from vegetarian to vegan to your traditional red pork to your chile verde, uh, pollo. You know, I've even experimented with uh, like a, a Italian alfredo sauce with chicken and poblano peppers. You know, you can make sweet ones. You know, I've made some with uh, Oreo cookies or arroz con leche, pumpkin pie, pumpkin spice, you name it. Everything, you know, it's so diverse. Yes, tamal just... You wrap it up and please don't eat the oha. It's not edible. You know, you don't want to bite into the corn husk. And then the cooking, that also gives the tamal like the very distinctive density, like the flavor even. That's right. Yeah, you got to steam them in a steam pot. After that, you can do whatever you want with them. You can fry them. You throw them on the comal. You can grill them. You can microwave them. And, you know, I, I like to fry mine in a little bacon grease and butter. Also, I, I forgot to, to add this on. A lot of the traditional way to make them is, is by manteca, lard. You use lard for the masa. It gives it flavor. And it also, you know, it gives it this extra moisture, it releases the oils and it, it's easier for it to come off. The husk can use anything from corn oil, vegetable oil, canola oil, coconut oil. I am also very comfortable making concessions with Mexican food and making my own versions and creations. So basically, what we're saying is that tamales are pretty much the staple dumpling in Mexican food. You know, dumplings exist all around the world and they can be cooked, boiled, 
steamed fried. Uh, in the case of Mexican uh, tamales, they are always first steamed, and then, like Tao just said, they are then, you know, textured up. That's right. I never saw it like that. I mean, dumplings are, yeah, almost kind of like tamales. It's like the Asian tamale. <laughs> now... You mentioned something earlier about the way you like to dress and the way you like to go out actually affected people's perception about you. And I want to expand a little bit on that because the plethora of uh, documentaries about cuisines from the world, I think they have really made a huge impact in the way we are now open to understand and have a different concept about what a cook is. We now see old and young cooks, male and female. They're from different ethnic backgrounds. You have really cultivated a very unique personality that I think reflects your American Latino upbringing in, in a way that you feel proud of it. You know, you have young children and I imagine their expectations and aspirations as young boys looking up to you might be very different from the upbringing of your own generation. So what are your reflections about that? I do feel like a lot of us Latino men are changing the identities of this generation. We, we don't look like your traditional tamalero or taquero or paletero. We have our own unique style. We grew up here where we lived that Chicano lifestyle. It has changed a lot. Only women could. Luckily, my dad didn't grow up like that. That's what he taught me and my, my older sister. It's changing, you know, slowly you see a lot of Latino young men like myself cooking for their families or cooking for a living. It's something beautiful that everyone can enjoy. My kids are, are huge foodies. These kids are like the less pickiest. They remind me of a little version of me. They like to be around the food. They like to be around the fire. Oh, what are we cooking today? They appreciate it. They know the love that I have for it. They respect it. Uh, in one of your Instagram stories, I saw a post that you shared a couple of sandwiches and, and, and very sweet notes, you know, with something like, um, work hard or HLA ganas, mijo, I love you very much. Um, my mother would sometimes write notes and just like I did something loving something a, a beautiful quote or something you know something uplifting that would give me through the day so I wouldn't see it until lunchtime came and felt good so yeah I, I've done that with my kids since they started school and I like to pack them their own lunch sometimes if they're lucky they they get tamales you know and I, I send the little extras for them to share with their friends and and their friends go crazy and then they eventually because they carry my, my business cards with them so they gave them a business card hey here's my dad's card if you want tamales hit them up you know and that's that's just how it is with them that just takes me to think about what being a solo entrepreneur means how much of your time takes up and how much responsibility it means to carry on the whole business the gig economy is changing the way we see things and the idea I guess of owning a brick and mortar restaurant is less and less appealing to younger generations. Uh, earlier this year, I remember talking to the child of uh, some friends in England, and she was like, "I want to buy uh, an old truck and convert it into a food truck, and I'm going to chase festivals, and and then I'm going to make a lot of money." We all said, "Yes, of course, Izzy, you're going to do that." Why don't you explain to us what it really means to own a business that is not a brick and mortar business that you are constantly 
rolling and chasing gigs and chasing pop-ups and you know partnering with people and of course i also can understand how adrenaline driven that can be and you really need to have a very specific type of stamina to actually get a kick out of that but at the same time i'm sure obviously it's much less glamorous than than what it might seem open up that world to us Absolutely. I feel that if anyone out there wants to start their own business in the food industry, just start small. You you want to set some goals that are realistic. You know, you want to change the way people see certain foods. I feel that's very important too. You know, um, you got to have a catchy name. You know, have 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 something that's going to attract people to your brand. You know, you got to stand out. You got to make things old, be inviting. You want them to want more. It's not about the money. You're going to have to bust your ass every day, 24-7. You're going to get no sleep. You're going to get very limited hours with your family. You better be ready because it's it's not easy. You got to be consistent. Whatever it is that you're making, it's got to be consistent. It's got to be delicious and beautiful, you know, and, and, and don't set high expectations because if you think that you're going to go out there and there's going to be a thousand people waiting for you, you're wrong. It's never going to be like that. You know, it's you, you got to be ready though. If, if that time comes and there is people out there waiting for you, you better know how to handle it. Give them your best service and your best attitude. These people are going to want it again. That's one of the best feelings ever, whether it's one person or two, thousands, hundreds, whatever it is, that's what's going to push you. Something you've also talked about before is how you have come to understand that the value of food, thankfully, is beginning to change. And now we are learning to appreciate and embrace the craft of the people that make this food possible. The specialized website franchisehelp.com says that Mexican restaurants are 7% of the total food market in America. On top is hamburger restaurants with 30%, followed by pizzas, sandwiches, chicken, eight, and well, like I said, Mexican, just seven. So what can you share uh, with us? Who are your clients? What kind of people buy your tamales? You, I'm guessing, have finally found your niche. Who who are these people? First off, those, those numbers really surprised me. I felt like Mexican food was up there at least above sandwich spots. I mean, Hamburgers, I get it. Also feel that in my city, you know, here in Las Vegas, Nevada, a lot of people support locals. My customers, from their perspective, they tell me that they eat more uh, like our little street chef culture than they do fast food. And this is the vast majority of my customers and a lot of my street chef homies, they do the same. We all support each other. We order from each other. Bean Kitchen, Red's Kitchen, you know, all these street chefs that make different types of foods. We, we kind of just support each other. People think of this city as a city of sin. Yes, it has that, but it, it's also a big community of people that support each other. That makes us special. What you're saying then is that 
you have pretty much helped build this ecosystem of entrepreneurs, but also of people who have learned to see the value uh, of buying, you know, independently produced food as a way of supporting the social tissue of their own community at the face of a seemingly dehumanized city. You are building the human aspect of it by supporting each other, if I get that correct, huh? Absolutely, yeah. I, you know, most of us um, are trying to pull away people from eating junk food. We try to, to accommodate to everyone. You want vegan options? We have vegan options. And we try to keep it locally, shop locally when it comes to our produce and everything else, you know. You know, we want to provide you with the best, you know, we want to give you a little different taste into our cultures. And we want to do it the best way possible. And I'm sure it will take probably another generation. Your children will actually harvest the products of this strengthened and much more integrated community. Just to close the interview, I have one last question, and I can't believe we are reaching the end. According to this website, which specializes on tracking food trucks all over America, just go to roaminghunger.com and you enter the city or postcode where you are. And in Las Vegas area, where you are, at least listed on the website, there are four Mexican food trucks uh, that sell primarily tacos, variations of that as well, which tells me that you really have no competition, at least, <laughs> you know, on that front. You know by now many hard lessons, but you've also taken huge risks and huge leaps to turn these obstacles into opportunities. Why don't you tell us about your next goals and, and what you have uh, planned and envisioned for the years ahead for your business? Oh, man. Well, a lot of traditional Mexican restaurants here in this city tend to have a specific menu and they don't change it. Whatever dish, they don't like to infuse flavors. They don't like to, to bring something new to the to the menu. I feel like that might be uh, one of the many reasons that, that their business is affected by, by just the same people eating the same things, you know, uh, Essentially, the, the, the main goal is to have a restaurant. I want people to come to my place and be able to enjoy beer with a nice craft tamal. Also collaborate with other local businesses, such as uh, first one here, and I eventually want to open one in another city, something away from Vegas, whether it's California or somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. That sounds very exciting, and I'm sure you will come up with something grand. Thank you, thank you. I, I appreciate that, and you know, it's people like you that that keep me going. You know, um, just to be able to be here and share my story with your podcast and what you're doing, and it's very humbling and it's awesome to to be here. It gives me a purpose. So I'm the one who's grateful because when taking upon this mission to tell the story from all its angles and from the people who are the real heroes behind it. You, your story and all the guests of the show that are the ones keeping the tradition alive. Just to close now, share with the audience how can they reach you now that they have heard all about the story behind El Tamalucas and your delicious love-wrapped tamales. Follow us at, at El Tamalucas on Instagram or Facebook. El 
I'm a Lucas. Thank you guys all for listening to my story and hopefully I'm able to, to motivate others to do the same. If you have an idea, just put it out there. Don't be scared. It's a scary world already, you know, just, just get out there, put the best you have and you're going to get a great outcome. Thank you. And thank you for the last words. I, you know, wish you success for you and for your family. So thank you, Saul, again. Oh, Rocio, thank you and I appreciate everything. I, I hope to talk to you soon. Hugs, thank you. We'll keep in touch. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. This interview was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. To find more information about this project, please go to pazdechipotle.com. Support this show on Patreon, the largest platform that connects independent creators with great audiences like you. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast. Every donation makes a big difference for the show. Go to patreon.com forward slash Chipotle podcast and be part of this delicious story. Sabor, this is Mexican food is a digital editorial project that celebrates the wonderful world of Mexican gastronomy, the flavors, ingredients, and traditions that have shaped this world-acclaimed cuisine. And now you can purchase and download a bundle containing all four available issues, the origins, go-go, street food, and Mexican fiestas. Enjoy 23 thought-provoking articles and stunning photography that opens a window to understand and appreciate Mexico's rich culinary traditions. And unveil the secrets to prepare 43 delicious recipes that bring families together and will help you enjoy the making of your own traditions. Go to pasachipotle.com forward slash magazine and get your bundle of sabor. Enjoy it in all your digital devices. Go to pasachipotle.com forward slash magazine and get ready to cook, learn and enjoy Mexican food like you've never imagined. I want to share with you that I'm still currently working on the post-production of my upcoming book, Amazing Mexican Market Food. Now, creating a book is a complex and wonderful project, which is why it requires a lot of time and support from amazing, loving people. On my website, paisdechipotle.com, I've been sharing the making of this book with a series of blog posts documenting some of my work and also sharing aspects that are key if you are thinking about writing your own cookbook, like food photography, how to start your research, and even which books to read while you're at it. So make sure to check this series. You can also get updates of my work straight into your inbox by subscribing for free to my newsletter. Find the link to do that on this episode's notes and on my website. The next episode is the second part of the history of Mexican coffee, which I assure you it will be best listened with a cup in hand. Well, that's it for this week, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>